All right. Well, as we already heard this morning and even saw evidenced in our service, this is one of our family Sundays that we have at the end of the month. Um, so all the families, we're all here together. And really, this is, we, we want to see this as an opportunity. We want to do worship as much as possible as families together. And this is an opportunity that I hope is happening on every Sunday, but specifically on family Sundays in which you with parents are going home and discussing things with your children, talking through the service, asking them what did you get, what didn't you understand, and explaining things. And the passage that we have this morning has some things that are a little bit difficult and not the things that we normally talk to our kids about. But before we get to there, and we've, you already know a little bit of where we're going based off of what we've heard read earlier, the passage of Scripture, I want to talk about the power of expectation. That based off of what you expect, that changes your perspective entirely on what actually happened. So you can have the exact same things happen, and yet, based off of your expectations, what you think of those things is totally different. Let me give you just a simple example. I could explain to you a trip like this. If I woke up early, I go, I go down, I drive over to a body of water, I get into a boat, I spend time out in nature with the sun uh, coming up, seeing a, the sunrise. I get to spend time just seeing all the things that God has created. I finish, I spend maybe four hours, I finish that trip, I go back, I get back into my car, I come home. I might look at that trip as a total success or a total failure, even if everything happens is pretty much identical. The difference is if I was expecting a sightseeing trip, or a fishing trip. If I was expecting a sightseeing trip, then everything's like, man, I got to see the sunrise and, and just to see the majesty of that. I got to feel the, the nature and feel the warm sun. I get to spend time just floating, not thinking about anything else. That's a sightseeing trip. On the other hand, I woke up early. I went out onto the boat. It was hot. It, I got a sunburn. I spent four hours doing nothing, and I didn't catch a thing. Same trip, but because of my expectations, my perspective of that trip changes dramatically. One of the other things uh, I could think of uh, recently, I just found out that one of my son's like, things that he thinks is one of my crowning achievements was that I used to work at Denny's. He told me this week, oh, Dad, I tell my friends, my dad used to work at a restaurant, and it was Denny's. And so if you want autographs later, like, come up to me, because I worked at Denny's before I went to college. But one of the things I hated the most is when people come into the restaurant, they know what to expect. It's Denny's. You know what you're signing up for. But we had this one thing on the menu, because most things that you order were good. You, you signed up for this. We had a T-bone on, on the, the menu. And for whatever reason, whenever someone saw the words T-bone, they forgot that they were at Denny's. And all of a sudden, they think that they're at this other restaurant entirely that's going to provide them the T-bone experience they expect. And so whenever someone ordered that, I was like, ah, 
it's going to be sent back like three times. I'm not going to get a tip. It's not going to work out. And, and it doesn't matter if we tell them to do it rare because they were only like a quarter of an inch thick. So put it on for five seconds. It's well done. They would forget and they would just change their expectations. But, but if we think about this, what we expect to happen changes our perspective entirely. When expectations aren't meant, met, it leads to disappointment in best cases, resentment and abandonment in most cases. Now, kids, you're, you're hearing all of this. Expectations is just what you think is going to happen. And you probably have had times where you thought, oh, we're going to go to grandma and grandpa's house today. Or we're going to go to a restaurant. Well, a restaurant to you is probably Denny's. And then you find out it's some ethnic food restaurant. And you're like, ah, not my expectation. And you're disappointed. Here's the question. What is our expectation of being a Christian? Many have become disillusioned by their faith when faced with the reality of this world. And that word even there is difficult because we say disillusioned, meaning that they thought that there was this illusion of it and then it disillusioned. Well, wait a second. Is that the case? Is our faith something that we have these grand rosy ideas about, but it's just not reality? What did you expect your life to be after Jesus said, follow me. What did you expect your life to be after Jesus said, follow me? See, when it comes to human expectations of following Christ, compared to the reality we face, there are many different areas that lead us to disappointment. That we just look at them and we say, man, I don't think that this is the way it should be. And we've addressed many of those. You know, uh, William prayed about the last two years that we've had. Going through everything that happened two years ago, there's an element where we're like, wait, is this the way it's supposed to be? And we've talked about that. We've addressed the problem of pain. But there's other areas that our expectations of following Christ don't really match the reality of following Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our passage today. The specific area is our expectations of how the world will treat us. How is the world going to respond to me being a Christian? What are they going to do to me? When you live like Jesus, when you follow his commands, when you love like him, how do you expect to be treated? I don't know about you, but I expect a little return on my investment. If I sacrifice for the world, I want some recognition. If I serve the world, I want appreciation. If I love the world, I want to be loved by them. Is that how the world treated Jesus? Here's our big idea, very simple. Expect to be treated like Jesus if you are living like him. That's it. Expect to be treated like Jesus if you are living like him. This is a simple concept. This is not a message that you're going to come to and like, wow, here are all these theological things I had never considered, never even thought of. No, it's really simple concept. And yet it's incredibly hard to apply this. It's incredibly hard to grasp this and expect these things. Simple concept, hard to accept and expect. 
but this matters because if we don't expect to be treated like Jesus, we will find it increasingly harder to live for him. So we're going to go in, we're going to look at John chapter 15, starting at verse 18. Here's, here's the, the, what we're going to see. Expect the same treatment as Jesus. Here's the context. Love others, live like Christ. In our last passage, back in verse 12, this is what we saw. Jesus says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, the very first, the verse right before uh, where we are today, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The entire last three chapters, or, or the, the, what we've been in, 13, 14, 15, has all been talking about this is how you live like Jesus. Hey, this is how I serve my disciples. Follow my example. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. By this, all people will know that you are truly my disciples. Hey, do you love me? Follow my commandments. This is the fruit that you should be producing. Those are all the things. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is what you have to do. And that specific fruit that we're talking about is that we are to love others. Love like Jesus loved So what is our natural expectation of what will happen if we do the right thing? What's our natural expectation if we love others when it's hard? We expect people to respond accordingly. It's karma. Hey, I I put a little love into the world. I expect to get a little love back. It's the natural expectation of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what we expect is they will do that for us. If we follow Christ's commands and love others, we expect them to respond in kind and love us back. But is that what Jesus expected? Did Jesus give his commands and expect the return on their investment to be love? What does Jesus expect for his disciples if they live like him? Look at verse 18. He expected hate. If the world hates you. Man, that just seems like a 180 from where we just were. It's another splash of cold water after a series of shocks. Love others. That's my command. Okay, great. What's the result of that? What, what, what can we expect, Jesus? This sounds good. I think, I think we've got a good plan going. I'm going to love others. What's going to happen, Jesus? What, because that's hard. And so if you're asking me to invest in this, I'm expecting some kind of return. What's the return? If they hate you. That's not the expectation for the disciples. That's not our natural expectation. Wait, let, let, me, let me get this straight. You're leaving... You're not going to be around anymore, but we're supposed to love you by following your commands, and the command you've given us is to love others, but the result, just want to make sure I'm getting this straight, the result of loving others is the world's hatred? I'm, I'm not a fan. That's really not what I'm, I'm looking for here. Y- you know, Jesus, great plan, 
But can we go back to the plan from a few days ago? You know that moment where you entered in riding on a donkey, everyone's like waving at you, putting their, their shirts down for you to walk on them, like that easy path that you had coming in here? Can't, let's go back to that plan. That's a way better plan. This, this path of hatred? No, let's go back to that one. Where people are like, oh, you're disciples of Jesus? Whoa. This doesn't make sense. Why should we expect hate if we are showing love? Well, Jesus knows to expect hate because it's what he himself has received. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The inevitable hatred of the world is a difficult reality to expect, but Christ's words reveal both truth and the comfort that we have. Here's the first truth and comfort, because this is a hard thing to accept, but this is what we have. We're not alone. Jesus experienced it first. Know that it hated me before it hated you. Think of Christ's life. How did they receive him? How many times have the people that have said, oh, we love you, we're going to follow you, how many times did they turn away from him? How many times in just this book, in the first chapters, how many times did we see them seek to kill him? How many times did they try to stone him? How many times was he betrayed? Don't forget that the context of these verses is that Judas just left the building. Judas, the one that he has loved, the one that he has poured into, the one he has been with for the last three years, has just turned him over to the enemy. This is what we saw right when we started the Gospel of John. John 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus experienced hate and hardship his entire time on earth. From the cradle to the cross, the world sought to kill their king. Can you, have you thought of that, those bookends? What happens after Jesus is born? Who finds out? Herod. What does Herod try to do? Let's kill him. He's the king. Get rid of him. Jesus goes and proclaims himself as king to his people. What do his own people try to do? Kill him. From the cradle to the cross, his own people tried to kill him. They hated him. We're not alone if the world hates us. We're in good company. Know that it has hated Jesus before it hated us. Here's the second truth comfort. And you might look and you're like, I'm not sure that that's a comfort. Look, if there's ever a time that you want to be on someone's side, it's just a good place to be on Christ's side. If someone ever is able to say, oh, you're having something happen like Jesus, you're in a good place, even if those things are being hated like him. But here's the other comfort. We haven't done something wrong. Now, here's an important qualifier. Provided the world hates us because we are living like him and therefore being treated like him, okay? It's not, oh, I'm hated. I'm doing something right. Maybe. 
The context of these verses are you are hated because you are living like Jesus, because you look like Jesus. If that's the reason you're hated, you didn't do something wrong. See, what does logic dictate? What would the world, why would the world hate us? Well, because we've messed up. Because we haven't unlocked the right formula. Did Jesus do something wrong and that's why the world hated him? Did he just not figure out the right way to interact? People weren't sure because like, oh, well, this is someone that's kind of God and that just makes us feel uncomfortable. You know, if he had come a little bit more accepting, maybe a little less whips in the temple, this would have worked out. Jesus did nothing wrong and was still hated. How did Jesus treat the world? Did Jesus ever do anything that was less than the, an act of love to the world? Was there anything that anyone could ever point to and say, that was not loving? Some people try. But the reality is that when we understand the truth of God's love, that he defines what love is, then everything he did was love. For God so loved the world. God is love. He came with love. He displayed love. Could there be any greater display of love than what Jesus did? No. Again, from the cradle to the cross, Christ demonstrated love. He came into the world because of love, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. He died for the world because of love. This is what we had in our last passage. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for a friend. And Jesus did that. Everything Jesus did was love. He did nothing wrong. But what was the response he received? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They hated him. If you are hated because of love, be comforted that you are not alone. Jesus experienced it first. Be comforted that we haven't done something wrong. Christ loved greater and was hated more. Now you might say, well, that's all well and good, but I don't particularly want to be hated. This doesn't seem like a goal worth pursuing. See, we're, you, you, you might think we're looking at this issue wrong instead of acceptance of just, oh, well, roll over, show your belly. No, let's look, at, look for a solution. Let's figure out a way so that we can stop this because we don't want to be hated, so let's figure out how to stop the world's hatred. We could pursue that path, and many do, but it's not the right path for us. In verse 19, we see that there are two paths, the path of acceptance or the path of hatred. And what seems natural to us is, well, obviously, let's pick the path of acceptance, but let's look a little bit more into those. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. There's a way. There's a way you don't have to be hated by the world. There's a way right here in this verse that shows us, hey, there's another option. There's another path you could take, a path of acceptance. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Do you know what's a great way to not get shot? Be on the side with all the guns. That's a great way. 
Be on the side that's taking the shots. Be on the side that's doing the shooting. If you're on their side, that's a good way to not get shot. Jesus didn't come shooting. He came like the lamb to be slaughtered. So yeah, if you want the path of acceptance, if you don't want to be hated, there's an easy way. The world would love you as its own if you were of the world. What does that look like? What does that mean to be of the world? It's to align yourself with the world. It's to align yourself under the world's values, the world's pursuits, the world's morals. It's to not be an outsider. It's not to be a stranger in this land. It's not to be a citizen of heaven, but to be a citizen of the world. Hey, what the world says, this is what you need to pursue. I'm right there. That's what I'm going to pursue. This is what you need to love. That's what I love. This is what you need to want. That's what I want. This is what you need to build for your house, for your family. That's what I'm going to do. That's what it looks like to be of the world, to look the same. But the path of acceptance, as much as it might seem good and seem like the place we want to be, it is not our path. It is not the path of the Christian, which is a path of hatred because of faithfulness. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We have been called out. We've been chosen and appointed. Verse 16 of of chapter 15, what we looked at last week, says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I chose you. I appointed you. I told you to go. I've given you a mission. I've called you out of the world. The reality is we cannot be both in Christ and in the world. James 4 verse 4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not something where I'm like, come on, get to it. No, this is my struggle. Do you know how much of my life I look at and I'm like, man, I'm pursuing the things of the world. Man, uh, if you compare my life to the life of an unbeliever, there is not much difference in these areas. It looks pretty similar. Maybe that's why I'm not experiencing the hatred that Christ says is going to happen because they don't recognize me as one of his disciples. First John, verse two, uh, First John 2, verse 15 and 16 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now please understand something when we're saying this. What we're talking about is the values of the world. It's, it's the, the, the things that Colossians talk about, the, the spiritual forces, all of these things that the world has said, this is the order in which things happen. This is not saying that we hate those who are in the world. Pastor Don would say all the time, as a Christian, we don't get to hate anymore. We don't get to. 
I'm not saying, oh, the opposite of loving the things of the world. We are not to love the things of the world. We are still to love the people of the world. That is what the context of this is, right? The verse 17, love one another. Love as I have loved. How Did Jesus love the people that were easy to love? So understand the context. I'm not talking about here that, hey, you get to hate the people of the world. You don't. But what do we see in these verses in James 4.4, in 1 John 2.15, in our passage? What we see is we cannot be both in Christ and in the world. You can't walk both paths that are going in opposite directions. I can't be, have the love of the world, that path of acceptance, while also walking the path of faithfulness. They're mutually exclusive. So here's the question. Is it clear to those around us that we are in Christ and not in the world? If people evaluate my life, if they evaluate your life, is there a clear separation between the love of the world, the path of acceptance, and the path of faithfulness and the love of God? Do we seek the desires of the flesh? Do we submit to the values of the world? Do we swear the world's morals? We must turn from these things. We must choose the path of the believer, knowing that it also is the path of hatred. Now, now let's, let's be honest. Let's be real. This is a hard reality to swallow. It's hard for us to expect to be hated. And so we don't. Instead of expecting to be hated, we still seek a solution. This is what we do as humans. We try to fix problems. I know that Jesus said to love him by loving others. Okay, that's reasonable. That's a good thing to do. I'm all about love. Like, I'll love others like Jesus. That's a good thing. But then he said I should expect to be hated, and I'm not so sure. I'm not okay with that. I, I still think that there's a way that we can make this work. I don't want to be hated. There has to be a way I can still be loved by others while loving God. Have you ever had those thoughts? Maybe you haven't said them out loud where you've thought through that exact progression, but how, what do our actions demonstrate? Do my actions show that I'm really striving to be accepted by the world while loving God. You know what that reveals, at least for my heart? Arrogance. Because I think I can do something that Christ didn't. I think, you know what, I can, I can walk both paths at the same time. I'm not going any further than this because it's going to hurt. I can go this way and that way. I can do both things. You can't. Jesus didn't. Look at verse 20. Because we are not greater than our master. This is what it says. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. Here's the truth. We're not greater. We're not greater than Jesus. The implication of that, because I think that that's a truth that we all accept on a theological level. The question is, do we accept it on a heart level that understands, I'm not greater? Because the implication is, if we're not greater, then we should expect to have the same things happen to us. 
It means that we should expect to be per persecuted. Remember the word, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, it's not if anymore they will, it, they might hate you. Now it says they will also persecute you. Remember, there is a path of acceptance. But there is not a path of acceptance and faithfulness. If they persecuted him, they will persecute us. We're not going to unlock the key of like, you know what? I just need to follow Jesus. I'll be faithful, but I need to be really accepting. I need to, to soften some of the truths that Christ says. I need to, to, to do this in a way that they don't feel like, hey, look, that's your truth. This is what I'm doing, but you can do your own thing because I, like, I, I, just want, I want love. Let's just let's express love. It is expressing love to express what Christ expresses. The second result Im implication, though, is that we will have results like him. Now, there's two views for the second part, right, where he says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. That's a little confusing while we're reading this because we're like, okay, negative, 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 negative. And, and the two views are this. The, the first view would be, it's another negative. Look, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, which they did, they will persecute you, which they will. If they kept my word, which they didn't, they will keep yours, which they won't. Like that would be a negative view to a negative view. And there's an element of that that could be true in which he's saying, look, this is what you need to expect, hardship. The other view, though, is to see it as negative positive. If they persecuted me, they did, they will persecute you, they will. But on the other side, if they kept my word, not all of them did, but some of them did, which has been a theme throughout John. To those who did receive him, right, in, that, in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, they did not receive him, his own did not receive him, but there were some. Those who did become children of God. Okay, so if they kept my word, the few, they will also keep yours. The idea is almost like if you have a, a and, and this is not a great analogy, but if you had a master miner, someone who understands the process, what is that master miner going to expect to get most of the time that he's sieving through, that he's going through and prospecting? Rocks, sand, gravel. But on occasion, there's that gold. Should we expect... As, as apprentice miners that we're going to go there, all gold, all gold, all gold. No, that's arrogance. But should we expect some? Yeah. This falls in line with what Christ's purpose is that we're going to get to soon. That Christ had a mission, but he understood what the majority was going to happen. This is what we see in the parable of the farmer. How many seeds don't work? Three out of four. Does the farmer give up? No, he stays because there's still a purpose. L let me just make a quick aside. Th this is the folly of prosperity theology. We are going to get what Christ didn't. God is going to give me health, wealth, and happiness. That's not what he promises. He didn't promise us earthly health, earthly wealth, 
earthly happiness. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so let me, let me just get straight what you're doing with this whole thing. You've talked about the power of, of expectations. So what we need to do is just lower our expectations. Hey, you're a Christian? You're expecting way too much of God. Let's bring that down so that you're not disappointed. No. I don't want you to lower your expectations of Christianity. I want us to adjust our expectations of Christianity. What Jesus offers is not just good or passable news. It is the greatest news. It is the best news. Adjust your expectations. Don't lower your expectations. The wealth, health, and happiness this world offers are cheap trinkets compared to what Christ gives. Even in these last few chapters, he has guaranteed something far greater. What has he promised in just these last chapters? His love, his peace, his joy. He loved them to the end. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. This is to produce joy, joy to the fullest. Those are far more valuable than the health, wealth, and happiness that the world offers. But our folly, our arrogance is to think, well, I can have all of it. Jesus says, no, you need to expect what I got. If you're going to live like me, expect to get what I got. Don't lower your expectations because you won't receive what this world offers. Heighten your expectations because we receive what only Christ offers. Don't lower your expectations because you won't receive what the world offers. Heighten your expectations because you will receive what only Christ offers. So here's the question. Why will we, we be hated? Because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. We will be hated on account of his name. That's a great reason to be hated. We will be hated because they do not know the Father. What's the implications? There's the question, am I hated? Hatred is expected. Is it something we're experiencing? Am I doing something wrong if I'm not experiencing this? Maybe. In, in Timothy, Paul tells us to pray that we would not experience hardship. But then also in the other, uh, 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 the other epistle to Timothy, he says, you will experience this. So the question is, could God right now be giving you a season in which this is not happening? Absolutely. But that's the exception. What should be expected is the hate. If you are not being hated, then maybe the question we need to be asking is, am I really living like Jesus? Is it clear that I am not submitting and pursuing the world? Am I arrogantly believing I can be accepted by the world and remain faithful to Jesus? That's something that you have to evaluate for yourself. But we've seen that we should expect to be treated like Jesus when we live like him. But here's the question we need to address. Why is Jesus hated? I, I, I get it. I'm not greater than Jesus. I'm going to be treated like Jesus. You know, that's fine. I can understand that. What I don't understand is why Jesus was hated. 
If Jesus is love, why does the world hate him and in turn those who follow him as well? So let's look at the next part that we need to understand the world's hatred of Jesus. The world hates Jesus because Jesus reveals their guilt. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. The result of Christ's words is that they are guilty of sin and they have no excuse. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Because when we read this, this can seem confusing. Wait a second. If Jesus hadn't come, they wouldn't be guilty of sin or other, other uh, translations say they would have no sin. What is this talking about? Well, let's ask this. What put us in the place that we're in right now? Not the church, but the place of humanity. Why is the world where it is? Sin. Where did that happen? The fall. Did the fall seal the fate of humanity? Think about that. Did the fall seal the fate of humanity? It didn't. What happened right after the fall? Hope. There is a solution. Now, if there was no hope, would that have sealed the fate? Absolutely. But Christ gives a future hope. God says, I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. Even after the fall, there was hope. So what seals our fate? If it's not the fall, what seals our fate? How we respond to Jesus. If you receive Christ, where is your fate? You are in him. You are sealed for all eternity. If you reject Christ, what is your fate? Separation for all eternity. That's the basis. Does the fall begin that process? Absolutely. But what seals one way or the other is our response to Jesus. So look at what Jesus came to do. Verse, uh, John three sixteen through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The reason our fate was not sealed in the garden is because God knew there was salvation coming. He gave a hope. Our holy creator God promised a savior. There was one who would come to save sinful man. That was why Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Jesus came to save sinners. And that salvation, that hope that we have, that element in which the final sealing of our fate wasn't there is because Christ was coming. And that salvation is offered to any who repent and believe in him. Believing in Jesus seals our fate in that we are sealed by the Spirit for an, in, an eternal inheritance in him. We receive life in him. We receive his love, his peace, his joy. That's what we get in Jesus, and that is why he came and why he revealed himself. 
But on the other hand, if we do not receive him, what does it mean for those who reject God's plan of salvation? Their condemnation remains. Yes, we are condemned because of the fall, but that is sealed and final when we reject Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about. They wouldn't have that guilt, that guilt that seals them if they received me. But because they have not received me, because they have rejected me, they have no excuse. The world rejects Jesus. They remain in rebellion, the rebellion that has reigned since the fall. If they hate Jesus, they hate God. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my father also. As we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus is the only way to the father. How we respond to Jesus is how you respond to the father. But Jesus did not come in with words only. This is what I came to tell them. His words revealed him. It's also his works. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. A major theme in John is the words of Christ. The word came, but it's also the works of Christ. What reveals the truth of the words? It's the works. It's the signs that he did. I really am who I said I am. The things that I said I would do, I have the power to do those things. Why? Because I'm God. How do we know that? Because of the works he did. Only God could do his works. What is the greatest work he did? What is the greatest sign of who he is and what he came to do? His death, burial, and resurrection. Only Jesus, the Savior God, could do that. But the world rejects it. They have seen it, they have heard it, and their choice was to hate it. And Jesus expected, expected all of that. Verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus expected this hate. He knew it was coming, and he still came. Why did he still come if he knew it was going to happen? That's not the expectation that we want. If he was expecting that kind of return on his investment, why come? Because he loved us. Don't misunderstand these verses. This is not saying that if Jesus hadn't come, we'd all be saved. We'd still have the fall. Death still reigned, as Romans 5 tells us. But Jesus came to offer salvation. That's why he here, he's here. And yet, how you respond to his offer of salvation seals your fate. This is why the world hates Jesus, because they, how they respond to him seals their fate, because his revelation exposes their guilt, because their refusal removes their excuse. Jesus had a greater purpose. He received the, wor the, the world in or he, he received the hate of the world in order to offer salvation for the world. Now you might say, I understand why Jesus came and was subjected to hate because he had a greater purpose. But why do I have to stay here? Why does he have to leave me? Why do I have to experience that hate? Because we too have a greater purpose. Because we are called to continue the mission of Jesus. Verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Why are we still here? 
Why does Jesus leave us here to experience the hate of the world? Because we have a greater purpose. It's so that we can continue the mission he started. We are here to bear witness to the words and works of Jesus. And we don't do it alone. He gives us a helper. He gives us the spirit of truth. We're not expected to do the work that Christ himself did in our own strength. No, he gives us the spirit. That's the big promise. That's the start of Acts, that the the disciples receive the spirit, and that's what allows them to do what they did. Praise God, we don't do it alone. We have a helper. And what does this helper do? help us do. It helps us to bear witness. This is what Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did Jesus' words prove true for the disciples? Were they hated? Yeah. They were persecuted. They were killed. But did they fulfill their purpose and bear witness? Yes. Read through Acts to see how Christ's words came true in the lives of the disciples in the early church. They knew that they were going to be hated, but they bore witness. They pointed people to Christ. What's the result of that going to be? When you demonstrate to the world their guilt, when you reveal to them that they are condemned before the Father because of the fall, and their only hope is to respond by submitting to Jesus, by placing their faith in him, how do you think they're going to respond? Is that a loving thing for us to let them know their fate? Yes. Because if they don't do anything about it, if they think that they can just keep on going, they will go to hell. But it's going to be hard. And so that's what Jesus tells us. We must remain faithful to the call of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 16, I have said all these things to keep you, things to you, to keep you from falling away. Why did Jesus give them this news? It's not good news for them. It's bad news. If you're going to tell me the future, just leave out the bad parts. I'll just get anxiety. Jesus told them the bad parts for their good. He told them so they could adjust their expectations. What's down the road for the disciples after Jesus leaves? What's going to happen when they start truly living like him? It's not an easy path. They have a path of hatred because they are following the path of faithfulness. What would be the temptation for the first disciples when they started experiencing the world's hate? Let's make some adjustments. Let, let's change some things. Let, let's, let's do this. If, if what we're experiencing is hate, let's figure out a different message that, that reacts better to the people. No. Another expectation, another temptation would be to give up. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm not, I don't want this. That's what our temptation is. You start experiencing the world's hate because you're living like Jesus, make an adjustment. Do what you need to do so that the world doesn't hate you. Give up. Don't do that. Follow the, the things of this world. But Jesus told them so that they would not fall away. Indeed, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. For most of history and for most of the world, this is not a metaphorical statement. This is a direct 
truth. They will kill you thinking they are serving God. Now, sometimes we talk about that, well, how does, what does that look like for us believers in America? And we bring the level of persecution way down to think, well, yeah, I'm still persecuted. I'm just like you. Part of this passage has a prophetic purpose. There's a good chance this is our future. The way this world is going, there's a good chance that this is not a theoretical statement but an absolute 100% statement of what we should expect. This is what the world around us faces. This is what the Christians before us have had. But there is an element in which there is a current reality to this. The current element of this is, is when we see what are the gods of the, our culture. Follow your heart. Acceptance. Do these things. Will they kill us? Will they put us out of the synagogues, the common places, because we don't ascribe to that God? Will they say that you are not accepting? You guys are a bunch of homophobes. You guys are a bunch of all of these things because of what we do that is against their God. And will they put us out? Will they kill us? Will they destroy us thinking that they are doing a good thing? They will. Expect it. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. What does this show us? This is showing us their need. It's showing us our mission. They need Jesus. This is why we bear witness. What's the danger? They might respond by receiving our words and believing in Jesus. Praise God, his sovereign purpose was accomplished. But more likely, though, is that they will remain in their rebellion and reject your words as they rejected him, and they will then hate you for revealing their guilt. Praise God. His sovereign purpose was accomplished. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, when this hour of tribulation comes, you may remember what I, that I told them to you. The hour is coming. Expect to be treated like Jesus if you are living like him. We don't want to fall away. So what's your expectation of being a Christian? What did we think our life would be after Jesus said, follow me? Are you prepared to be hated by the world because you love them enough to tell them of Jesus? You love them enough to show their guilt. That's not a, I'm better than you. That's not a, oh, you're such an idiot for not getting this. That's a, look, this is where I was and this is what I needed and I'm pleading with you to accept this. Understanding that when you accept this, you're going to face the same hardships I'm facing now. Parents, are you preparing your children to live in a world that hates them because they love Jesus? Are you having those difficult conversations, those moments that sometimes you stay up at night and think, man, what are my kids going to face if this is what the world is doing right now? Are you actually having that talk with your kids to say, this is what you should expect? But it's worth it because we have his love his peace, his joy. Expect to be treated like Jesus if you are living like him.